Father, please open our eyes so that we may see Jesus through the scriptures of truth, through the gospel of our salvation. We thank you for this privilege in Christ's name. Amen. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, increment 30. I trust that everyone is patiently enduring during this present crisis or this present time. We're continuing in the word. We're continuing in Hebrews, which is the ideal place to be, the ideal book to study, the ideal epistle, that is, for such a time as this. Sublation. That's S-U-B-L-A-T-I-O-N. What is it? Sublation carries the basic dictionary definition of negation. The word was used in a different way, however, by the theologian Karl Rahner and later by Bernard Lonergan. Lonergan used it to describe a process by which something is incorporated in a higher integration and given a new significance and a new meaning a new organization, new capacities. For example, mere human living is sublated, we could say, by the Spirit of God into a human living and livingness that has far more significance, far greater capacity, greater organization. When mere human living is sublated by the Spirit of God, and that occurs when a human being is incorporated with Christ and is being transformed. Characteristically, we've called that a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Spirit of God. Human living in that higher integration is not negated at all, but rather sublated, integrated in a higher integration of livingness. Once again, it's called newness of life, Romans 6.4. If anything is negated in this act of sublation, it is the ordinariness of mere human living, which, when it's left by itself, is enslaved and controlled by the power of sin and the fear of death. So what's, we could say, what is negated or even what is destroyed in that higher integration is the former livingness, the former self under the control of sin and expressive of a disposition called the flesh. Sublation in this sense, and you won't get this from a dictionary definition, sublation in this sense is not mere negation, but incorporation into a higher integration. In this sublation, something is indeed negated. Something actually 
perishes. That's the Greek word apolumi. Something actually perishes. And that's the old man. Palaios anthropos. Or the former self under the control of sin. And that person under the control of sin eventually becomes expressive of a distorted human disposition. But in the higher integration that we call the Christian life, the old self is put off like old and worn clothes. And a new self is put on like a new set of clothes. We have that in Ephesians 4, 22, 24, and also Colossians 3, 10. The new self is still me, only a new me. I think Paul put it best when he confessed, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, you see a kind of an interchange here between Paul, I, and Christ, and yet not I, but Christ, and yet I. So the I, the ego, the person is not destroyed in the sublation. What is, sublate, what is sublated and therefore destroyed is the former self that was Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor, an injurious person, a harmful person. So Paul said it again, I think best. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that is in this present state of corporeality, of this bodily state, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. Paul was one of those Christians who refused to frustrate the grace of God by trying to gut it out on his own. Paul's I, quote, I, close quote, was not destroyed or negated. It was sublated into a higher integration and a higher new organization in which enormous new possibilities and abilities, gifts and sensibilities could be realized. What was negated was the perishing self, the perishing self. Consider the concept of judgment or the word judgment. When we think of judgment, at least this was my perspective of it, we would almost naturally consider it to be descriptive of a punitive or destructive act or process. And in one sense it is, judgment can have that sense of being destructive. For in the judgment of the cross, the greatest judgment of all, the old creation was destroyed. 
it was made to perish. However, this destruction has to be viewed as a sublation of the creation into the higher integration and organization of what is called the new creation. What is destroyed or negated, we could say, in this act of sublation, what perishes in the judgment of the cross is not the creation per se, but the creation in its slavery to decay. That was poetic by accident. What is destroyed is creation in its subjection to futility, in its unsteady state, its presently shaky state, that which the science of physics calls entropy, E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. So why have I started off today's increment in Hebrews with sublation? The Greek phrase I'm coining today or using in the study is autoi apoluntai su de diamenes or diamenes. They will perish, but you remain. It's a phrase we're going to study. Well, I've talked about sublation in this way in order to prepare us for an interpretation of the next three verses in the study of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, in which the psalmist who is quoted by the PT says the following about the earth and the heavens or that which we call the universe, the heavens and the earth, the universe. Hebrews 1 verse 10 through 12, my translation, and in the beginning, and simply introduces the quotation of yet another verse, again from the Psalms. And, quote, in the beginning, Lord, that Lord there, Kyrie, is a title for Jesus Christ. It's used for Jesus in all the way in Hebrews thirteen twenty toward the end of the epistle. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 11. They will perish. They will perish. Autoi apaluntai. They will perish. Please notice that from the Greek verb apalumi. But you remain. Su de Diamenes, you remain. They, that's the heavens and the earth, including the vastness of the celestial heavens, they will all wear out like a garment. Then in verse 12, and like a cloak, you will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment. Notice that we have another use of a clothing metaphor as we started off with putting off the old self, like an old set of clothes. We have it here, the universe, like a cloak. You will roll them up. You'll change them like a garment. But you are the same. Ho'atas ho'atas. You are the same. Ho'atas. 
Again, that's another title for Jesus Christ in a way. You are the same. And again, that stretches all the way out to Hebrews 13, 8, where it says, Jesus Christ, by name, the same. Ha'atos, yesterday, today, and forever. His eternality, as we call it, his absolute eternity, includes eternity a parte ante and a parte post. And then it says, and your years will never come to an end. So in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12, we have the following, what we'd call, we'd call sort of a syllogism, which is the way Aristotle used logic. A syllogism reads like this. I would read it like this. The imperishable son, S-O-N, is superior to the perishable creation. The angels are part of the perishable creation. Therefore, the Son is superior to the angels. Now, when we say that the creation or the universe, the present heavens and earth in Bible language, are perishable, and it says in 111, they will perish, which is a quotation of the Septuagint of Psalm 101, 27. We're dealing here with another fairly extensive quote. Like Psalm 44, 7 and 8 in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, we now have Psalm 101, 26 to 28 of the Septuagint quoted in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And so we're speaking of that which science of physics, the science of physics refers to again as entropy. The universe is not in a steady state. Regarding the refutation of the idea of what is known as a steady state universe, Hugh Ross wrote the following. The established character of the cosmic microwave background radiation, the abundance of the elements, the dispersal of the galaxies with respect to time, the scientific entropy measure, and the accelerating expansion of the universe clearly refute the possibility that we live in a steady-state universe. And that's pretty clear. Even from looking at history, we don't live in a steady-state We live in a changing history. We are now in, as a nation and as a world of nations, in what is known as a downtrend of history. My prayer is that it will be followed by an uptrend of history. And that's largely dependent upon the state of the people of God. It's largely dependent upon the number of people who are awakened to their reconciled status in Christ and who live not for themselves but for Christ. We can hold all that for a later message. Now, I chose to quote Hugh Ross on this, not because I understand, and I don't pretend to understand, cosmic microwave background radiation, the scientific entropy measure, or even the accelerating expansion of the universe. But I chose Ross because he is a competent and renowned physicist and uses these factors to refute the notion of a steady-state universe. 
Besides being an eminent physicist, Hugh Ross is an eloquent apologist for the notion of a cosmic beginner or a divine maker of the universe, the creator. The long title of the book from which I'm quoting is, quote, The Creator and the Cosmos, How the Latest Scientific Discoveries Reveal God. Hugh Ross is a believer that the cosmos has a creator. So is the psalmist quoted by the pastor theologian in Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. Some science that is riddled with scientism, which excludes all other forms of reality besides that which is observable, Scientism has yet to catch up with the psalmists and the truth of the Bible, not the other way around. As far as entropic measure, as he calls it, or the measure of entropy, it's enough to say for our purposes that entropy is related to what Ross calls, quote, a pervasive law of decay and, quote, a propensity toward dramatically increasing disorder. He rightly notes that what Paul says in Romans 8, 20 to 22, and you may want to turn there if you're listening to this and you're not driving. He rightly notes that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22 is related to entropy. We fairly recently studied this passage in our series called Reading Romans with the Light On, and we came up with an expanded translation of that passage which reflects the measure of entropy with descriptions of the whole of creation, the universe we call it, as being in subjection to futility, meaninglessness, and in slavery to decay, futility and decay. Subjection to futility, the Greek is te matai oteti he katesis. The creation subjected to futility in Romans 8.20 and it's slavery to decay, tes dulias, tes thoras, are both descriptions of the scientific term Entropy. They're appropriate or fitting descriptions of scientific term entropy. But what is foreign to a purely secular scientism, however, which is one of the new idol gods of our times, secular scientism, the science, put a big capital S on that because science, science, science will save us. Well, I think that's part of the subject that's for a BS degree, but we'll talk about that another time. Of course, I mean Bachelor of Science. But what's foreign to a secular scientism, however, is the divine cosmic beginner or the creator, God who not only subjected the creation to futility, 
but did so with the expectation, God's own intention, that expectation or hope is God's own intention, that the whole of creation is to be liberated from entropy into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Romans 8.21. And that will be brought at the moment of the so-called apocalypse of the sons of God or the glorification of God's people in Romans 8.19. That's hope. Science doesn't offer hope. The word of God offers hope. We live in a time when people assume that Darwin was correct when in fact the latest even scientific discoveries are proving the fallacy of the Darwinian hypothesis which has now become nothing more than a tenet of an ideology that goes along with other godless philosophies. We'll be dealing with that down the road. I'm not going to just drop that bomb and then forget about it. But let's consider in the restoration of all things, which we've spoken of in many ways recently, the creator of the universe will evidently reverse the law of entropy from all of the universe. Just as he can reverse historical trends by providence, he can reverse the law of entropy, the futility and slavery to decay that's in the universe. How does he do it? Well, he does it by the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the cosmos. So consider Romans 8. This is my expanded translation from when we did reading Romans with the light on. Romans eight twenty to 22 reads like this. For the creation in its totality was subjected to futility. That's another way of saying that it was made void and without form in Genesis 1-2, only to be given purpose and shape by its creator's indwelling or residence. In other words, the creation that proceeded from God but's not God, without God is void and formless. With God resident in it, it fulfills the purpose of its creation. So again, for the creation in its totality was subjected to futility, not willingly, not because the creation even has a will, but through the one who subjected it, God's will. Through God's will, the creation was subjected to futility, but God subjected the creation to futility. Notice how this verse goes on with the expectation or the hope. Now, this is a figure of speech. God's hope is his determined resolution. With the expectation that the whole of creation, verse 21, will be liberated from its slavery to corruption, to perishability, to perishing, into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that all of creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs even until now. Poetic language, true. Metaphorical language, to be sure. But language that explicitly and graphically and dramatically portrays what science calls entropy. 
Liberation from entropy is part of the salvation work of God in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Now, Romans, or we could say Paul the Apostle in Romans, acknowledges the divine creator, and so does the writer of Hebrews, the P.T., In fact, Hebrews' introduction, which we call the exordium of Hebrews, declares the Son to be the agent of the creation of the universe. So we could even say that he laid the foundation of the earth. He produced the heavens and created the heavens. And they were the works of his hands. He was the agent of God in creation. But he was also an actor in creation. And so he is the divine creator, as well as the divine agent of the Father in creation, the creation of the universe, which Hebrews 1.3 calls tos eonios. And as he who is by the word of his power, he who by the word of his power presently at the present time upholds the universe, even now, in its entropic state with the intention of bringing it to its liberation. Like the wobbling ark which Uzzah tried to steady, the Lord upholds an unsteady universe. But he also is bringing that unsteady universe to a glorious, liberated state. We come to this conclusion by a comparison of Romans 8:20 20 to 22 with Hebrews 1:3. Consequently, the universe in its presently perishable state will be changed by being made new. What perishes is the process or what let's just say it this way. What is perishing in this process or what is sublated what perishes in this process of redemptive transformation which is the ransom of the creation from slavery to decay what perishes is the perishability of the creation itself the very perishability of the creation perishes Now, Psalm 148.6, not quoted here, but listen carefully. Psalm 148.6, in the A part, says of the sun and the moon and the stars, quote, he set them in position forever and ever. Now, this does not contradict... Psalm 102, 25-27, which is the Septuagint of Psalm 101, 26-28, which is quoted in Hebrews 1, 10-12. This does not contradict what we're going to hear and what we hear in, in Hebrews 1, 10-12. Because though the universe is now in an entropic state, it is not destined to remain in that state. It is to be invested with imperishability by the command of God. And that's the same as our present perishable human bodies. They are destined to be transformed and exchanged 
to use a metaphor, for imperishable bodies. Our bodies are part of a physical and corporeal creation involving subatomic particles, atomic particles, molecular structures that are all sublated into higher forms into corporeality, a bodily form. Now, we will all be changed, says the scripture. We will all be changed. That's all of humanity. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, imperishable, and we will be changed. That is, those who, are, who have not died physically yet will still be changed because we're mortal, our bodies are mortal. Or our bodies, if we have died physically, as we say, or corporally, our bodies have corrupted, they've decayed to certain degrees, various degrees. Our present human bodies mortal and corruptible, are to be sublated by integration or incorporation into the trans-physical and transcorporeal body of Christ, which is a body of glory, right now in Philippians 3.20. So, again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul makes it a necessity because this corruptible must be, notice the next word, clothed, using the clothing metaphor, with incorruptibility or imperishability. And this mortal must be clothed with immortality. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 51b to 53. Our present human bodies, mortal and corruptible, are to be sublated by integration or incorporation into the transphysical or beyond physical and transcorporeal or transformed corporeal body of Christ. So this is what it means when it says this mortal must put on immortality and this perishable must put on or be invested with, we could say, imperishability. So this clothing metaphor is significant for our purpose because it's also found in Hebrews 111, which is a quotation of Psalm 101:27 from the Septuagint. Exact quote. There the changing of garments is the exchange of a perishable one for an imperishable one that will never need to be changed or washed for that matter because it will be part of a purified universe for he made purification of sins, says Hebrews 1.3, and took away sin by the offering of himself, a once and for all purification. So the changing of garments is the exchange of a perishable one for an imperishable one that will never need to be changed or washed even again because of a once-for-all purification. In that sense, the old garment will be folded up and put away, we could say. 
The garment metaphor can be related to the change also, and listen carefully to this, this projects this passage deep into Hebrews because this change of garments metaphor also hints at the change of priestly garments. The garments of priests are a very important part of the Old Testament doctrine and the New Testament in a different way. It hints, therefore, at reference to, or it, let's just say the garment metaphor can be related to the change of priestly garments, and therefore here we have a suggestive reference to the change of priesthoods that's going to be the topic of Hebrews as well. Now, the change of priesthoods is from the Levitical, temporary, and worn-out priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, to the Melchizedekan priesthood of Christ, who is said to be a priest through the age, the eternal Son, who has inherited a name above all the angels. The changing out, therefore, of perishable for imperishable or of corruptible for incorruptible hints at the removal of the first system of sacrifices and the establishment of the second and final all-sufficient sacrifice of the Son for all people, for all time, forever. As Hebrews 10.9 says it pretty explicitly, he takes away the first to establish the second. This also applies to the covenants, the old, worn-out, Palaios covenant at Sinai, spoken through angels, mediated by Moses, changed out for the new everlasting covenant, ratified by the blood of Jesus. He takes away the first covenant, the one made at Sinai, a word spoken through angels and mediated by Moses, and establishes the new and everlasting covenant by the blood of Jesus, spoken of in Hebrews 13, 20. That covenant is God speaking finally and definitively in a son, Hebrews 1, 2. So Jesus is going to be portrayed as an archpriest whose priesthood, This passage we're dealing with now has to do with his coronation. It's a royal passage. We're not even where the priestly passage is, but there are hints of the priestly passage in the change of garments and in the change of the universe itself. So we're going to get into the priesthood, and the hints are all over the place here. Jesus is an archpriest, another word for high priest, probably a more accurate word, archpriest, archieros, archierhus. He's an archpriest whose priesthood does not end with death, physical death, as it did for the Levitical priests. For him, in a sense, it began with his death, his physical corporeal death. In a sense, it began with his death, although we could debate as to where and when his priesthood began. But in Hebrews 7.16, it says, he is a priest 
not on the basis of a legal command or a legal ordinance, but on the basis of, listen to this, the power of an indestructible life. By the power of an indestructible life, he enduringly lives, lives forever or ever lives, to make intercession for us to save us to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25. And that means to bring us to the maximum state of such a great salvation in the eschatological future, the time of eschatological Sabbath rest into the eschatological Sabbath rest that awaits the people of God. That's salvation to the uttermost. The people of God being all of humanity in all of its times who will have been redeemed from corruption along with all of creation. The uttermost of our salvation, Hebrews 7.25, is the universal perichoresis, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. Another word we can add to apocatastasis and anakephaliosis, or liosis rather, or palingenesia, or diorthosis, or the many words that describe this phenomenon. Perichoresis, when God is all in all, is what that means. When all is in God, and God is in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28 most explicitly defines this. Perichoresis is a term that was used by the patristic theologian Maximus the Confessor, who lived around 660, may have died around 660 A.D., A.D. 660. Gregory of Nazianzus, who died somewhere between 389 and 96, 396 A.D., had used the verbal form perichoreo. Now, the doctrine of perichoresis became formalized or crystallized with John of Damascus, who died in about 749 A.D., and he extended that meaning, perichoresis, to the mutual interpenetration of the three persons of the triune God. So he made it explicitly Trinitarian. Jürgen Moltmann then revitalized the doctrine fairly recently, the doctrine of perichoresis, especially with regard to the mutual interpenetration of the Trinity with the creation. That's what he called the universal perichoresis. That's our maximum salvation point, the universal perichoresis, which is a fitting name for God being in all and all being in God. We are going to be saved to the uttermost because Jesus lives with the power of an indestructible life. And we are incorporated into him. So let's look at Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. It involves a quotation of Psalm 102, 25 to 27 in your English Bibles. And in the Greek text, Psalm 101, 26 to 28. Now it's telling, and I may follow up on this, but maybe not. Preceding this passage is Psalm 101.25. Remember, if we fan out the whole psalm, we get more insight into the context by the context. In Psalm 101.25 of the Greek text, the psalmist prays an unusual prayer. He says, do not take me away at the midpoint of my days. 
in the middle of my life, in my mid, mid, middle age, as we would call it, while your years are in generation of generations. That means while your years continue generation after generation, which is another way of describing age-long or age-abiding or even eternal. You're the eternal God. Please don't take me away in the middle of my years, in my middle life. We hear people talking about a midlife crisis. Well, the psalmist is praying, don't take me out. Don't take me away. Don't let me die in my midlife. Please note that this psalmist petitions the Lord not to take him away at the midpoint of his days. Not only would he be not living out a long life, but he implies that maybe he's going to miss out on some rewards if he's taken out now. I ask this question then, and I really don't know the answer. I'll put it to you, the audience. Is this the danger in which the readers of the Hebrews, of the epistle to the Hebrews, find themselves? Are they going to be taken away in the mid of their lives in the Roman persecution? Or... If they are, will they die a martyr's death? Or if they are, will they die a death of disgrace and of disowning the Lord? Well, that's a question that we can leave. But we know that this audience, if this audience is a house church in Rome then they had been they had understood 16 years before this what it is to be persecuted and ostracized and socially left out under the claudian expulsion so these people may have been in fact some of them anyways in the midpoint of their lives well that's a question i think that's a good question to follow up on sometime i don't know if i will maybe some of you will i don't know but then we have the quoted text, and this is, comes right from the new translation of the Septuagint, and it goes like this. At the beginning, it was you, O Lord, who founded the earth. Now, it seems here that the you is being addressed is the son, just as he was addressed in one eight and 9. At the beginning, it was you, O Lord, who founded the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish. There it is. That's why I introduced this message the way I did with sublation. They will perish. What will? The earth and the heavens. They will perish. But you will endure. And they will become old like a garment. Like clothing. You will change them. And they will be changed. Now it doesn't say they perish, but that they change. So the old, enslaved, and futile creation, void and without form, doesn't remain that way, but is changed. Sublated into a higher integration. So they will be changed. Verse 28, which is... Psalm 10128 in the Septuagint and 
Hebrews 1.12, but you are the same. You are the same. Is Jesus Christ being addressed here? Well, let's shoot this exegetical arrow all the way up where we hear somebody else is the same, and it uses the same words here. You are the same. Jesus Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So all the way up in 13.8, we have a reference back to this 112, where the same is the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this shows a kind of inclusio. Now, inclusios are important because something appears at the beginning, something appears at the end. We can then surmise that there is some kind of a chiasmic structure. Chiasmic. Chiasmic is the Greek word for chi. And it refers to a structure that's kind of A-B-B-A, a structure. I call it the Abba structure. That's not where I'm at today, and I don't know even if we're going to really major on the structure of Hebrews. That's an altogether complex study that I don't know if we're going to handle on our present Hebrews 2020. But please note that it is precisely the Son who is being addressed in this psalm. The proof of the, this lies not only in the continuity from the quotation of Psalm 45, 5 through 7, LXX 44, 7 to 8, with this Psalm, Psalm 102, 25 to 27, LXX 101, 26 to 28, but also by a comparison of the second to the last clause of Hebrews 112, which is 101, 28 of the Septuagint, ho, or rather su, de, ho, Autos, su de ha autos. You are the same, or but you are the same. And a comparison with that, as we've said in Hebrews thirteen eight, Jesus Christos ek thes kai semaran. Today that is, and then forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. Ha autos. And ice tus aeonas. Jesus Christ, in other words, the same yesterday, today, and forever. They will perish, on the other hand, as the present state of the heavens and earth, the universe in entropy. They will perish is synonymous with what Paul described in Romans eight twenty to twenty two, the shaky state of creation as subject to futility. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, but we've received a kingdom that cannot be moved. We've received a, you might call it, a steady state kingdom because of the Son who lives in a steady state of eternality. They will perish then in Hebrews is synonymous with Romans in 8.20 to 22, which is the state of creation as subject to futility and enslaved to decay. So the present earth, the sky, the celestial heavens, which are more vast than the psalmist or the PT ever really knew, and we know even better, they're in a state of perishing because of the entrance of sin, capital S-I-N, into the cosmos. God who made them will change them by making them new for eternal life. 
the old entropic form of the material universe, as it's called, is destined for change. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the cosmos. That's of the, not only of human beings, but of the cosmos or the universe. The telos, T-E-L-O-S, which is called the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and following, will involve the sublation of all of humanity and all of creation by an integration into God's own eternal life. So, I'll close by a couple of observations. First, in our time, the vastness, or what we might call the sheer immensity of the cosmos, the universe, has literally come into view through certain telescopes. With this immensity before our eyes, literally, we are actually more equipped than our ancestors, even in the time of the Old Testament and New Testament, to appreciate the vastness of the horizon, not only of God's creation, but also of the vastness of the extent of the reconciliation and redemption that he wrought in Christ, because the redemption is as broad and wide and deep and high as all the expanding universe, the ever-expanding universe. The creator of all things is the redeemer of all things. The salvation that God makes effective in Christ and by the Spirit who is sent in a second divine mission, that redemption is as vast in terms of breadth and width as the immensity of the ever-expanding universe. That's another reason why this salvation we're talking about, in the words of the PT, is called such a great salvation in Hebrews 2, 3. Why would we neglect it? Our lives would be completely meaningless if we utterly rejected so great salvation. Our, our lives would be without hope. They'd be subject to futility. They'd be in slavery to the fear of death. If we didn't have this hope, if we didn't have this expectation of the liberation of creation, we groan with that creation and we have to gut it out in one sense in this life because this life is this life. Just as we have to patiently endure in a present season of a downtrend in history while we await an uptrend through the grace of God and perhaps and hopefully a new wave of awakening and evangelism. So in closing, again, let's call this closing part two, the love of Christ is said to have dimensions. And Paul prays that we would, with all saints, grasp or understand these dimensions of height and depth, width and breadth, of the love of Christ, Ephesians three eighteen and 19. The love with which he loved 
us as he endured the cross is the love that he had and that he has unabated and undiminished and will have undiminished and unabated for us in the future. It is at least that love, it is at least as broad as the ever-expanding universe with its trillions of galaxies. The love of Christ is the love of Yahweh who announces himself in this way in the Targumic version or the Targum of Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, Deuteronomy 32-39, which reads this way. See now that I am he who is and was, and I am he who will be in the future, and there is no other God besides me. This Targum gives the particular sense of the futurity the futureness of Yahweh, and as such shows the futurity of his love or the certainty that his love will be undiminished in the future, as well as it was in the past and in the present of his love. It also shows, in other words, the eternality of his love. It is also involves an exposition of the divine name I am that I am. I am what I was and I am and will be. As John Ronning correctly surmised, it's an exposition of the divine name and we're back now to the name above all the angels in 1-4 of Hebrews. So Hugh Hugh Ross was right when he wrote, not, not only as a physicist but as a theologian, Near the end of the Creator in the Cosmos, he wrote this paragraph. Jesus Christ was fully God, sharing in all power, all authority, and all the extra-dimensional capabilities that God possesses. But for our sake, Christ lowered himself and accepted the weakness and limitations of a human He came into our dimensions to show us God, whom we could never otherwise picture, to give us an example of humility, and to pay the price for our redemption. After fulfilling his purpose in coming, Jesus once again took up all the power, authority, and transdimensional and extra-dimensional capacities that were rightfully his as God. We couldn't picture God any other way. We can only picture God when we see Jesus. So this is certainly in accord not only with Philippians 2, 6 through 11, but also with the essential truth of Hebrews itself and with the wonderful summarizing words of Paul in 2 Corinthians thirteen four. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by God's power. By that power, he who died for us and as us lives for us and as us. By that same power, we live for him. 
who is our life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Once again, increment by increment, here a little, there a little, line upon line, to see Jesus. That's why we're here. Continue to open our eyes, but open the eyes of multitudes of millions of people, even now at this very moment in history and beyond. Open the eyes of millions across the nations and across this globe. Bring by your spirit, by your word, bring an awakening, a reawakening, and a an evangelism as to the glorious good news of the glory of the Christ whose glory will fill the earth. Please, Father, allow for the eyes of this world to be opened and for people to awaken and truly be woke to the universally saving significance of your son Jesus, that we may see him, that multitudes of millions more will see him in his universally saving significance and see him crucified and the endless impact of his cross. We ask this in his name. Amen.